The next day, the large crowd that had come to, fe to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But then Jesus, when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things had been written about him and had done to him, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was at Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servants, where my, will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. These are the words of our Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Yes. Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you for joining us. Believe is our current teaching series, working our way through the gospel according to John. Make Your Life Count is the title of this weekend's message. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 12. We read just a part of that, about not quite half of that text. And we're looking at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. Let me start by asking you a question, give it some thought. If you knew you had only one week to live, how would you spend your time? You only have one week to live, how would you spend your time? Turn to the people around you and ask them, how would they spend their time? Do that real quick just to, just to make sure they're, they're thinking about this. Pretty important question. So what are you guys thinking about? Anybody here thinking maybe you just go out and spend all of your money as fast as you can and bounce your last check? Anybody thinking along those lines? Anybody thinking about, I'll go out and get all the insurance I can get and pass it on to Pastor Ray? 
Anybody thinking along those lines? No? That's hurtful. I think most of us immediately would probably think if we were really in that situation, I mean, we can kind of guess a little bit, but I've been with people in that situation, and typically faith, family, friends, ranks pretty high. And, and so what we have here in this teaching, in the context, in the final week before his death, Jesus Christ came into a holiday crowd to reveal himself as a king like none other who came to bear our judgment and teach us that the most important thing in life is to learn how to lose your earthly life so that you can gain eternal life before it's too late. Now this is the, really the end of Jesus' uh, public ministry. And so this gives us what he's focused on, what's most important, what he wants to pass on to the people in public. And then the next five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, he goes into more of his private ministry with his disciples. Oh my goodness, I think, I love the whole book of John, but in particular, this is really sweet. We, we are able to be up close and personal to Jesus, to hear his heart as he communicates with his disciples in chapters 13 through 17, the very heart of Jesus. And so this is the heart of Jesus to the public, and then we'll head in the next few weeks, the heart of Jesus uh, privately to his disciples. Here's the thesis statement for this weekend. So Jesus is a king like none other, this is what this text is telling us, who came to bear our judgment and teach us how to live for his glory before it's too late. A bit of urgency here, once again. So Jesus is a king like none other. This is based on verses 12 through 19. So this large crowd is gathering, as we read there in the text, and this is kind of what would be known as a ticker tape parade in those days, waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And, and Jesus found a young donkey and said on it, just as it is written, verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is fascinating because he's quoting Old Testament. He's showing everyone that this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, prediction some 500 years earlier in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. And so this is peculiar, this is interesting. This is, a, like I said, in their day, kind of a ticker tape parade, what the Suns will have when they win the NBA finals. But they better play better than what they did last night, okay? And so, uh, it's interesting, this is his first coming, and in his first coming, and, and the people certainly confuse the first coming with the second coming. They were thinking he was coming to set up his kingdom politically, chase off the Romans, the Roman Empire, take over. That's what they're saying. Woo, he's here. Politically, he's gonna take over. Wrong, this is his first coming. He's riding in on a donkey. So in his first coming, he rides a donkey's colt to bear our judgment. Anybody know what he's gonna be riding on his second coming? A horse, a white horse. Second coming, he rides a white horse to bring judgment. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, it's frightening. If you haven't read that in a while, you need to go and read that. It's quite 
frightening. That's, that's his second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes William Wallace from the movie Braveheart look like a wimp. I mean, seriously. And so it's important to make that distinction between the two. And, and let's just talk just for a moment about judgment. If there is no final judgment, then what hope is there for this world? But if there is a final judgment, then what hope is there for us? The hope for us is that he came to bear our judgment with his, his first coming. Now his disciples, verse 16 says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, and uses this idea of Jesus saying, I'm gonna be glorified, glorified. What does that mean? Crucifixion, he's gonna die in our place for our sins. So when he was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So, I mean, that's what stirred up the crowd. I mean, the raising of Lazarus was climactic in the ministry of Jesus. And people are just going, wow, this guy's phenomenal. This guy's got great power. This is indeed the Messiah to come and rescue us. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I wish the world would go after him, our world. And so it's telling us a couple of things. Jesus is a king like none other. Now here's the two characteristics that you need to understand about Jesus and what is being conveyed here in this story, in this, uh, what is known as Palm Sunday. Uh, next, your first fill in the blank, that Jesus is indescribably great. He's a lion. Indescribably great. We see that in the many miracles that he performed. He's just totally unshakable in so many different ways, and yet this climactic miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. But we also know that he is unimaginably good. He's not just a lion, he's a lamb. He's riding in on a donkey's colt. He's conveying something to us about this. Now, now it's important to maintain this balance between him being a lion and a lamb. He's indescribably great, he's unimaginably good. The tendency for all of us individually as Christians, and also I see this in churches, that we tend to lean more towards one rather than the other, maybe even to the exclusion of the other, like we wanna talk about his greatness all the time to the exclusion of his goodness, or we wanna talk about his goodness to the exclusion of his greatness, and it creates an imbalance in our life. What happens to a church or to a person that all they talk about is the greatness of God? they tend to become legalistic. It's called moralism. It goes like this. If you don't get your act together, God won't accept you and, and, and won't bless you. It's called legalism. And I, I've heard that from churches. Get your act together, come on, what's wrong with you? So they're leaning towards the greatness of God to the exclusion of the goodness of God. What happens when you lean towards the goodness of God to the exclusion of the greatness of God? It's called liberalism, antinomianism, anti-law. God accepts me, he accepts everybody, so it doesn't really matter how you live, doesn't matter whether or not you obey, he just loves everybody. It's all the goodness of God. Now you could, if you think about that, you, you might even know Christians that lean one way or the other, or even churches, major ministries, 
national ministries that would lean towards one or the other. So it's important to maintain that balance. What's the balance? Well, someone who lives in the reality of the fact that he's a lion and a lamb, indescribably great, unimaginably good, they're going to experience a freedom, which is the gospel. God accepts me. He blesses me in Christ. Therefore, I want to obey. See, that's the gospel. Revelations 5, 5 through 6 talks about this lion and lamb uh, aspects of the nature of Christ. Uh, A lot of scriptures help us understand that. Psalm chapter 8 is one of those that helps us to understand that. Maybe you're familiar with it. King David said this, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place. What is he describing there? Indescribable greatness of God. Then he's gonna move from the indescribable greatness of God to the unimaginable goodness of God. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him and the son of man, that you care for him, unimaginable goodness. I can't believe it, God, you created the heavens and the earth, and yet you love me, you care for me. You notice the balance? You've gotta have that balance if you're gonna be healthy. So, so we've gotta understand that, that God, is, God is transcendent. Jesus is transcendent, and yet he's imminent. He's powerful, and yet he's personal. He's great. And he's good. Got to have that balance. In fact, here's your next fill in the blank on your notes. It is his greatness that makes his goodness so comforting. This eliminates fear, gives us confidence in our life. So if you have fear in your life, it's because, yeah, you might know, oh, yeah, God's really good. He loves me. I know all that. But do you understand how powerful he is? He might be good, but can he... Can he really look after you and take care of you and love you like you need to be loved? Yes, he's great. He's powerful. No one will stop him in taking care of you. So you gotta have that balance. It is his greatness that makes his goodness so comforting and eliminates fear, gives you confidence. Here's the next one. It is his goodness that makes his greatness so convicting. Someone this great would be that kind to me? Oh my goodness, of course I wanna live for his glory. Yeah, I wanna honor him. This eliminates pride, gives us humility. See, the more you live in the reality of Christ's greatness and goodness, the more you will be characterized by a humble confidence. No pride, no fear. No pride, no fear, humble confidence. That's how we should be characterized uh, by is this, this humble confidence if we really understand the greatness of God and the goodness of God. That's why it's important to maintain that balance. No pride, no fear. Jesus is the true and better king we long for in our frustration with all of our presidents, leaders, and politicians. You ever get frustrated with the whole political process and all of that? Yeah. You know what that's telling you? It's telling you you long for the true and better king, the Lord Jesus. We're desperate for him. We're desperate to, to vote for politicians that represent him and look more and more like him in their character. That's what we want to look for, and that's important. Jesus is the true and better hero we, we long for in all of those popular superhero movies we watch. I mean, those superhero movies are so crazy popular, it's unbelievable. Why is that? Because there's a longing inside of all of us for a hero to come and save the day. It's in all of us. 
We look for it politically. We look for it spiritually. We look for it in every area of our life. Only Jesus is the true hero of our lives, and not just our lives here, but for our eternities. So Jesus is a king like none other. Here's the next point in your notes, who came to bear our judgment, based on verses 20 through 24. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They came to Philip, said, hey, we want to see Jesus. And Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour, this is verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There it is, he's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about dying in our place for our sins. And he says, truly, truly, gives us a metaphor. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about his death, about it bearing much fruit. We're the fruit of his death. So here's the next thoughts. The glory of the cross is that in the very same stroke, it reveals the love of God, that is the goodness of God, that's your fill in the blank there. So the love or the goodness of God, that aspect of his nature that seeks our justification, and then the justice of God, that is the greatness of God, that aspect of his nature that demands punishment for, for sin. So once again, you gotta maintain that balance. Goodness of God, greatness of God, his love and his justice. Romans chapter three, verse 26, it's a great text that kind of puts these two together. Look at this, it, that is he's talking about in the context there, the cross of Christ was to show his righteousness, he's a righteous God, how did he show his his righteousness. He did it at the perfect time so that he might be, this is key words, that he might be just, so he's just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So him being just, that's his greatness. Him being justifier, that's his goodness. Let's just think for a minute. And, and, and this is actually what you should be thinking about every day. You should be reflecting on, on this truth here, letting it get a hold of your heart, not just as a concept in your mind, but a reality in your heart. Think about the achievement of God. In justice, God passed the required sentence of death on our sin. That's his greatness. But in love, he took that punishment himself on the cross. Oh my goodness. When I began to understand that years ago, I've never gotten over that. That's spectacular, that's beautiful, that's amazing. If he never did another thing for you, that would be enough. He died in your place for your sin to reconcile you to the Father. So you can know God intimately. You can experience him in your life. God does what we cannot do so that we can become what we dare not dream, perfect before God. That's amazing. Think about that. Think out the implications of that. That changes everything in our lives. Glory of the cross. So Jesus is a king like none other who came to bear our judgment and to teach us how to live for his glory. This is... This is how we apply this to our lives. How does it, what does that look like in our lives? Now, how do we live for his glory? The word glory, what does that mean anyway? Because it's used quite a bit in the Bible. The, the word glory means matter, weight, significance, 
importance. That's glory. So which one has more glory? Let me walk you through these options. They're, they're kind of obvious, but I'm, I'm trying to make a point here, so, so just hang in there with me. Um, the crowd last night tried to rush the stage after I did this. And so it wasn't very nice, so just back off just a bit. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, I'm just trying to make a point here, okay? So which one has more glory, a flashlight or the sun? Obviously, the sun, okay. $10 or a billion dollars? Billion dollars, okay. A speed bump or Camelback Mountain? Okay. Milwaukee Bucks or Phoenix Suns? Well, right now, I think it's Milwaukee Bucks, okay. They, they seem to be playing more glorious than the Suns. Okay, so, okay. Okay. So, so you're getting, getting my point. So glory, weight, significance, importance, that it matters, matters more than anything else. Isaiah 40, 15, and 17 says this. It compares God to all the nations. Think of the mightiest nations on this planet. I think that the uh, United States is a pretty mighty nation, but put all those mighty nations together, and this is what it says. It says the nations are like a speck of dust compared to God. So if, if you put God on the scale on one side and all the nations on the other side, Isaiah says it's like a speck of dust. It's like nothing. The scale just, boom, drops. All the nations, nothing compared to God. See, when you understand that, you're beginning to get a glimpse of how great and powerful God is. I mean, think about this. Why would we be overwhelmed with the trials and the difficulties of our life? We don't have a concept of his glory. We're not living in the reality of his glory and who he is and how powerful he is. Why do we get upset over politics and the way things are going in our nation? He's powerful. He's greater than all of that. He's still working in the midst of that. He wants to use us through all of that. And that's important for us to keep in mind. It's, it's about his glory. To convey the glory of God into words is like trying to put the Arizona Cardinals football stadium in the trunk of your car. Or better yet, trying to pour the Pacific Ocean into a thimble to really understand the glory of God. Now, every one of us are in desperate need of glory. We all desperately need to know that we matter. What's the point of my life? Does my life matter? Will anyone remember me? What am I really accomplishing? Is my life of any consequence? Those are glory questions. The Bible makes it very clear. You were created by God for God to give glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 puts it this way. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We were to live for his glory, putting on display his glory. The Bible says that glory is the answer to the spiritual, psychological, and social issues of our day. This is the solution to all of our problems in the human race. So three questions we need to ask as we apply this idea of the glory of God to our lives. Here's the first question. How do I know I've experienced God's glory? Because that's what this whole text is about, the glory of God. How do I know that I've experienced God's glory? Answer, God will matter to me more than anything. That's how you know that you've experienced God's glory. Look at verses 25 and 26. 
Whoever loves his life loses it. He's talking about if you're going to live for your glory, guess what? You're going to lose your life. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, and he goes on to explain, this is basically learning to live for God's glory. You cling to your life, you hang on to your life, you make life all about you, your glory. You want to know why we're, our country is so trashed and heading in such a bad direction? Because we're all living for our own glory. That's what's happening. And he says... You're going to lose it. You're going to lose your life when you live for your glory. You're going to gain life when you live for his glory. And he goes on to talk about what that glory looks like. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He's talking about glory. You'll experience glory in your own life. So, so how do we know that God matters more than anything? We serve him. We follow him. We are with him. We experience him, we have intimate relationship with him, and the Father honors us. Came across a quote yesterday, it was quite interesting in my devotions, and uh, it, was, uh, it was, the devotions was titled, Better Than Fame and Celebrity, and this is what it said. In a survey of millennials, 50% of young adults said that a major life goal was to become famous. In the past, people wanted to be famous for doing something. Now, celebrity has become an end in itself. It has attained godlike characteristics. Not only do people want to be famous, but they also idolize those who have achieved celebrity status. This widespread interest in famous individuals has been described as the cult of celebrity. Fame to the ambitious is like salt water to the thirsty. The more you get, the more you want. He goes on and talks about Madonna here. Madonna, who at one stage was probably the most famous woman on the planet, said, I won't be happy until I am as famous as God. Celebrity and fame are only a pale reflection of true glory. Glory is used in the Bible to denote the manifestation of God's presence. Glory is one of the most common words in the Bible. God's glory means, and basically what I, how I defined it, means his importance, reputation, majesty, and honor. Perhaps it is not surprising that as society moves away from worshiping the glory of God, it turns towards the worship of the glory of celebrity and fame. That's what's happening. Fascinating. So you could define a Christian as somebody who has experienced the glory of God. If you haven't experienced the glory of God, then, then you're not a Christian. If you have, it makes you a Christian. See, the difference between religious person and a Christian is really the glory of God. The Christian has experienced the glory of God. A religious person hasn't. See, a religious person, God is part of their life. A Christian, God is their life. See, a religious person knows about God. A Christian knows God, has an intimate relationship with God. That's the most important part of their life, is to know God, to walk with God, to to live for his glory. There's nothing better, nothing more important Religious person, for a religious person, God serves my plans and purposes. By the way, you can find a church that will help you to, to control and try to manipulate God so that he serves your plans and purposes, makes you great. But a person who's truly experienced the glory of God, a Christian, knows that, no, I serve his plans and purposes. 
See, a Christian will regularly examine his entire life to make sure that God is number one, first priority, at the center of everything. One of the things that I do every morning, the sweetest part of my day is is spending time with the Lord at the very beginning of the day. I absolutely love it. I don't think I could carry on the rest of the day or the rest of the week unless I do that. And part of that is that I spend some time in confession. And part of my confession is that I kind of work through my motives, my thoughts, my words, my deeds, my actions. In other words, the Christian should be asking himself this. If you've really truly experienced the the glory of God, is God at the center of my motives, thoughts, words, and actions? Is God at the center of how I use my time, talents, money, and possessions? Is God at the center of my work, relationships, sexuality, and politics? Is God at the center of everything in my life? See, that's someone who's experienced the very glory of God. My son Russ this last weekend talked about his life group leader and his wife and how the sweet fragrance of their worship of God, even in suffering, had blessed Russ and his wife Kim tremendously. And it also blessed me because I know the people personally. In fact, they're sitting in this service right now. They're great people. I'm not trying to elevate them up on a pedestal because they wouldn't like that. They wouldn't want that. Because their life isn't about themselves. It's actually about the glory of God. And it's, it's quite amazing. What's amazing about this couple is that they seem to be unshakable, unflappable in, in, in difficulties and suffering. And, and it's, uh, they continue to love, be kind, and tender to people in the most difficult circumstances. They both have an inner serenity, strength, and satisfaction in Christ that everyone wants to touch, that everyone wants to experience. You want to know Why? Because nothing matters to them more than God. You see, all the success in this world, even if we were to elevate them and put them on a pedestal and pat them on the back, it's nothing compared to what they already have in, in, in God. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. But ultimately, huh, I've got all the affirmation and acceptance I need in Him. All the suffering in this world can't take what they have in Christ away from them. They can't, they can't ever lose it because, they, because of what they have in him. They're unshakable. That, by the way, if you've, in, in fact, my next question here is, where does that come from? They have both experienced the glory of God. I'm telling you, you experience the glory of God, you will be unshakable. Now, if you hung out with me for very long, you'd realize that I am shakable, Okay. And so you'd say, Pastor Ray, you just need to experience the glory of God. I'd say, yes, I do. Please pray for me, and I will pray for you. We all need that. We fall short of that. that. And so that's why life rattles us. Politics trouble us. The difficulties all around us overwhelm us. Why? Because we're not experiencing the glory of God. We're not living in the reality of who he is and what he's done for us. The reason we get anxious is because we're treating certain things which are light as weighty, and we are treating weighty things as if they are light. Why do we get angry, discouraged, and fearful? It's all the same answer. Something or someone other than Christ is at the center of your life. Something or someone is more weighty, significant, and important than Christ at that moment. So just think about that. Think about that. Last weekend, my wife and I went away to 
went up to Flag, and then uh, it was 101 degrees on that Saturday there. It was just crazy hot. I go, I didn't come up here for this. And so my wife was at a women's uh, leadership retreat. I took her over to Park, which was close to uh, Williams. So I was by myself, and I just I texted her. I said, hey, can you get a ride home? Because I'm heading back to Phoenix. It's way too hot. And so I got in my car, and it took me six hours to get home from Flagstaff. Do you think I was unshakable? <laughs> I had to work through that a little bit. I spent a lot of time with the Lord in that car for six hours. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Six hours. This isn't how I wanted my weekend to go. This is supposed to be a restful weekend. I took the weekend off to rest, to recharge. And God said, yep, you're right here with me for six hours, waiting for the traffic to clear on I-17. Praise God. Oh, boy. So I decided to take that route. You know, I was able to get off of Bloody Basin and get around and go back to Prescott because I thought it would clear up and never cleared up. So I head down the back way, Yarnell way, and it was bumper to bumper. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> oh, boy. God, what do you want from me? What are you doing? I mean, it was just, it's just crazy. And God, so God will use those events in your life to continue to, to trust in him, love him, enjoy him, no matter what goes on. You realize that you don't really have, you know, it's not until you go through suffering you realize that you don't, you're not really in control of much, <laughs> if any, except for your own attitude in response to the difficulties of life. That's the bottom line. And so as you, as you work through that, that's, that's important. Something other than Christ is at the center of your life. That's what it's revealing. So I, that was revealing in my life. My having a good weekend was more important than the glory of God and experiencing him and knowing him. Wait a minute, I thought you were getting away to, to get to know him. <laughs> yes, I did, and he made it very clear that's what I was supposed to be doing. And so he locked me in my car for six hours <laughs> on I-17 just so that I could get to know him better. Praise God. Okay, I'm not going to say any more about that. So how do I know I've experienced God's glory? God will matter to me more than anything. Here's the next question. Where do I go to experience God's glory? The cross of Christ is the apex of God's glory. Look at verses 27 through 32. Notice what Jesus says here. Now, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So he's actually saying, uh, show us your glory, Father. Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast down. He's talking about his crucifixion. So as we've talked, Jesus' life, death, resurrection conquered sin, death, and evil. That's what he's talking about here. And then in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up on, lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What does that mean, lifted up? He's going to be crucified. That's what he's talking about. 
because verse 33 says he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And I will draw all people to myself. See, a Christian is somebody who sees the beauty and the glory of what Christ did on the cross as something they can never get over as it draws them like a magnet. And they see the cross of Christ as being more attractive, desirable, satisfying than anything in life. What would make the mightiest being in the universe, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, to be troubled in his soul? That's what it said. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. He was beginning to feel the weight of all the sin, guilt, shame, and the wrath of God that he would bear for you and me on the cross. That's what he was beginning to to experience. Remember, he's just a week away from this. It's beginning to overwhelm him. He's beginning to, to experience just a taste of that. Now, let me take you all the way back to Genesis to really understand what's going on here and how that relates to our lives and living for God's glory. You and I were created by God, for God, to give glory to God. We were created to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, to look into the face of our, our maker, our creator, and to receive all of the acceptance, respect, honor, validation, approval, security, significance we would ever need. But we believe the lie of the serpent. Thought that God was holding out on us. He doesn't have our best interest at heart. By the way, that's the root of all sin. He doesn't have our best interest at heart, so we can do this on our own. And we turned away from God, it created this spiritual alienation between us and God, and immediately it left us psychologically alienated, empty on the inside, glory hungry. Because really the only one that we can really get and find glory in and get it from is is God, but we turned away from that and then we begin to look for glory in created things over and above the Creator. And yet God in His amazing plan before the foundation of the world knew this was going to go down and he had this plan a rescue plan by sending his son into this world to die in our place for our sins to reconcile us back to the father to know him to experience him that's his plan that's the gospel the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life the doctrine of hell is, 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 is about being cast out, where Jesus Christ doesn't say, I don't like you. He says, I don't know you. I don't know you. The Christian doctrine of hell is, is ultimate horror. The ultimate punishment for a human being is to be finally and utterly ignored by the only one in the universe that infinitely and eternally matters. It's eternal separation from God. The ultimate pleasure for a human being is to be finally and utterly adored by the only one in the universe that infinitely and eternally matters. So it's either eternal separation or eternal celebration. Because Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was utterly ignored so that we could cry with confidence, Abba, Father, Daddy, 
so that we could be utterly adored. Do you hear that? That's, that's the gospel. So we could be brought back into the family. He got what we deserve so that we get what he deserves. We're no longer slaves of fear, but children of God, Romans 8, 15. 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. At the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So how do I know I've experienced God's glory? God will matter to me more than anything. Where do I go to experience God's glory? The cross of Christ is the apex of God's glory. Now here's the last one. How do I experience God's glory? How do I experience that on a daily basis? By boasting in the cross of Christ. Now, everyone glories in something. Every one of, of us glories in something. Whatever you glory in is what drives your life. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6:14, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ to whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. We glory in things we think will give us the love, security, and significance we long for, such as relationships and achievements and accomplishments and acquisitions. It's interesting, I came across this story a number of years ago. I heard the story of a woman who for many years started, uh, starting at age 14, always felt like she needed to be on some guy's arm who made much of her. And this desperate need for a man drove her into many unhealthy relationships that were, that were ruining her life. And so she was really struggling, went to a counselor, the counselor said, well, here's, here's what you're struggling with. It's called the Cinderella complex. That's what you're struggling with. You have decided that the only way to ever feel worthwhile, valuable, substantial is if some man loves you. She was giving glory to the male gender in what they think of her was driving her life. That's what she was boasting in. So we're all boasting in something. She asked her counselor, so what do I do? The counselor told her, you have to go out and get a career so that you can feel like a worthwhile person no longer dependent upon men. She said to her counselor, if I go out and get a career, why won't I be just as emotionally in bondage to my career as I was to men? The counselor said, oh, I see your point. It wasn't until she became a Christian when one day she realized, it dawned on her, if someone as glorious as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loves me, adores me, gave his life for me. There is no reason for me to ever feel like I don't matter. I matter to the only one in the universe that infinitely and eternally matters. See, when she stopped glorifying men and started glorifying in the cross, she got all the glory she would ever need. That's our struggle. That's our battle. Until the overwhelming weight, importance, and significance of the cross of Christ becomes the thing you boast in the most, you'll never have peace and always be in bondage to lesser glories. Whose love, approval, acceptance, validation matters more than anything? God's, the Lord Jesus Christ. If the cross of Christ makes it possible for me to stand before a holy a holy God, utterly unafraid, why should I be haunted by what anyone else ever says about me? No reason for that. 
Now, I didn't read the text here, but in verses, I'll give you a quick summary, and the rest will be part of your homework, but verses 34 through 36, the crowd, the crowd doesn't understand why the Messiah must die, and then Jesus makes it very clear that this is the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, and if they'll believe it, they'll become sons of light. In other words, they'll begin to live for God's glory, and they'll put that on display, as it tells us in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is a king like none other who came to bear our judgment and to teach us how to live for his glory before it's too late. There's an urgency at the end of this, and I'll let you study this on your own, verses 37 through 50. Here's the three last points. They're not filling the blanks. We'll just... Knock them out very quickly, and then we're going to head into communion. The longer we wait, the harder our hearts become. The harder our heart becomes, verses 37 through 40. So if you're pushing this off, living for God's glory, you still want to live for your own glory, I'm telling you, your heart's going to get harder. Here's the next point. The more we love man's glory, the less we'll love God's. You see that in verses 41 through 43. And the only way to escape the final judgment is to believe and receive Christ as our Savior who has suffered our judgment on the cross, verses 44 through 50. I encourage you to read that on your own. That's your homework. And so I'm going to have a pop quiz when you come back next weekend to see if you did that. So, how do we live? How do we make our lives count? By living for his glory. By living for his glory. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? So Jesus, you bore in your body all of our punishment, guilt, shame, condemnation, blame, fault, all of our corruption, so that we might stand before a great and holy God, loved, forgiven, reconciled, justified, accepted, and the beneficiary of unspeakable promises. May that matter to us more than anything else in this life, putting Christ at the center of our lives and living for his glory. I pray for those who have never given their life to you, Christ. I pray that they would do that now. Pray that they would acknowledge their sin that separates them from you, that they would believe that you died on the cross for their sins. They would confess you as Lord and Savior by grace through faith in you. God, as we take communion, we pray Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. We've got three stations. Make your way up to one of these stations, and they'll pass out to you the two cups. Take it back to your seat, and then I'll walk us through the process. Be thinking about as you do this, what is God speaking to me this morning? What is God wanting you to know about his glory this morning? I absolutely love the glory of God. His glory. Nothing better, nothing more satisfying, nothing more soul satisfying, life liberating than to see and experience the glory of God and to be able to show His glory. That's what He's called us to do. It's just so profound that through the cross, the Son of God was glorified. The justice of God was satisfied. The love of God was magnified and the people of God those who have put their faith in Jesus 
are justified. We're justified before him, forgiven of all of our sins, brought into his family, lavished with his love, guaranteed a place in heaven. Unbelievable what we have in him. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes let's drink together so next weekend servant leadership John chapter 13 verses 1 through 17 leadership is about influence and so we're all influencers, we're all leaders to a greater or lesser degree, and so we're going to talk about that. I'll be up front at the end of the service, along with any available leaders or elders. If you are new, I would love the opportunity to meet you. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. And if you have any questions, we'd love to try to answer those questions for you. Here's, here's your blessing here this weekend. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, give you peace. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Love you guys.